Welcome to another episode of Empower Apps. I'm your host, Leo Dian. Today, I am joined by Sarah Reichelt. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on. I'm really happy to have you on. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Leo. I'm really looking forward to chatting to you about Max software development, which I feel is an, uh, an area that doesn't get enough coverage. It doesn't. It doesn't. Even though I'm sure Apple wants to get more people into Mac development. Yeah, I, I've always loved Mac development, even though I was first introduced to the platform through iOS. Uh, I think I honestly have more of a soft spot for Mac development. Before we get into your new book, I'll let you go ahead and introduce yourself. Okay, my name is Sarah Reichelt, and you can find me on Twitter at Trosware, and my website is tros.net, that's T-R-O-Z.net, and um, I'm a, I guess I'm an educator, I'm um, an app developer, and I do contract programming. That's me. Can I ask where the Tros comes from? Yeah, it's Zort in a mirror. It's what? <laughs> Are you familiar it's with Zort. the, oh, the Zort. cartoon series Pinky and the Brain? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, Pinky, yeah, Zort. Okay, Pinky in the brain. That's where it came from. It's Zort in the mirror. They do the same thing they do every night. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. That's the now one. I know. Now, I, I totally would have not gotten a Pinky in the brain reference from that. That's awesome. So I'll let you get started talking about your new book, Mac OS Tutorials. Excellent. Mac OS by Tutorials. It's published by Ray Wenderlich, and you can go there if you have a subscription. You can read it online. You can download the ebooks if you'd rather the paper copy you can buy it from Amazon. And it's a bit of a departure from the usual Ray Wenderlich areas in that it is talking solely about Mac OS development and it talks about the Mac. It's uh, leading you if you're an existing iOS developer, it's really leading you into Mac development. Uh, it's not for total beginners. It expects some basic Swift knowledge. It covers SwiftUI, it covers AppKit. And I think if you're already an iOS developer, you'd find this a good introduction to getting into Mac development. Are you a developer who got into the Apple platform through the Mac and then got into iPhone development? Or did you start off with iPhone and then you found out about the power of the Mac? I was uh, developing on the Mac before the iPhone. Okay. Okay. That's a, that's, that was my question. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I was a hypercard person uh, way back in the okay. day. Yeah, yeah. Which was an amazing platform, which Apple didn't really get, and then Steve cancelled it. But and then when the iPhone came along, I thought, well, I got to get into this, so I I learned Objective C, and then Swift came along, and I thought, oh, this is so much better than Objective C, <laughs> so much easier to write, so much easier to write good code. So you don't miss Objective C. I do not. No, no. Though the, okay. the square bracket and the keys on my keyboard are no longer worn shiny. <laughs> <laughs> so i want to talk about one of the things i've been saying a lot on twitter i don't know if you have to but certain complaints about system preferences or settings as it's now called in ventura and i i empathize with it because i've been i've done a i did a little bit of app kit but most like i think probably most of my mac os development experience has been honestly swift ui and I get it. Like, as far as designing and building an app, it, it's not even the building the part. It's the designing part that I feel the real friction with SwiftUI. Because when I build something with SwiftUI, it's like, in iOS, it's like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Like, I guess I get what they're doing there. But with macOS, I feel like I am having an uphill battle with 
what the design guidelines have and what you would expect on the Mac and what SwiftUI offers. Does that make sense? It does. And I think you're, you're completely correct in saying it's a design decision. There's the, the things that people are complaining about in the settings app. And, and I get what they're really complaining about is inconsistency. Like a menu button will look differently in one panel than it does in the other. But that's not SwiftUI. That's a design decision made by a person. I mean, if you have a menu button in SwiftUI, SwiftUI doesn't, you know, roll a dice and decide how to display it. SwiftUI does what it's told, more or less. And um, so it's the different developers on the team that have chosen to use different styles. Now, I I have to confess, I haven't read this year's uh, human interface guidelines yet, and I know that Apple has rolled... It was a big revamp. I don't know if you've You've gone onto the site. It's a huge revamp, so that's that's welcoming. I'll say that it is welcoming. And but they have before the Mac always had its own set of guidelines, and now they have been rolled together, so they're all in the one document. And this, I think, is part of Apple's plan to sort of unify the platforms more. But I have to say, there's a lot of aspects of the new settings app that I really like. The old one, I mean, it hadn't changed design since. OS 10 1.0, basically, the icons had changed, but it's uh, it, it's uh, always been confusing. You know, I do a lot of support and people ring me up and say, you know, how do I find this? And I say, well, go to system prefs and find this. And, and you know, five minutes later, they're still scrolling back and forth trying to find the one they want. So I like the look of the new settings. I like the fact that it's not just a catalyst app where you get these huge controls that just look out of place on a Mac. I like the new toggle buttons that are tiny versions of the iPad and iPhone toggle buttons that work so well on the Mac. So I just think they just need to get their guidelines more into place so that they have a more cohesive look and feel to it. I do think there's a part of it though where the settings are just broken. Like I've, especially when it comes to like privacy and settings, when I, you know, and I've filed feedbacks. So there is that aspect too, where just like, Something is not connecting correctly in SwiftUI properly. I I actually do like the design of settings, so I'm I don't have a big complaint about that. I feel like I have that friction more when I'm building an app in SwiftUI than it is using any of the new stuff in Ventura per se. But yeah, I mean, do you? It sounds like you like the system settings. Did you have you liked so far the design trend in Mac OS when it comes like post Big Sur, I guess? I like I think I like Ventura better than I liked what was last year, Monterey. Monterey Monterey, yeah. Felt like they were going very much to sort of iPad on the Mac. And I think with Ventura, they've Macified that better. Yeah. Uh, there were an awful lot of catalyst apps in Monterey. And now there's more native SwiftUI apps in, in as part of the system. And I think that's yeah. a good trend. Since you brought it up, maybe I'll ask, have you built any Catalyst apps? I have not. Um, no. Okay. I mean, I've built a test one, but no, I'm I'm not a Catalyst fan, as you probably know from if you've read my book. Right. It, it just doesn't work for me. I, it's a neat trick. And if you've got an iPad app all ready to go and you can't be bothered doing anything else, then go for it. But I don't think that Apple, with all their resources, should be using Catalyst to get apps on the Mac. I think they should be using native Mac apps. Exactly. We'll get it. We'll get into the Mac app development platform competition later in the episode. Were you 
impressed, happy with what you got out of WWDC this year? I was, yeah. There were some really nice things. I mean, every year SwiftUI gets more features, gets more capabilities. There was the the new charts framework, and I've wrestled with charts many times and ended up actually giving up and just writing my charts in JavaScript. So and then, like, use a web view or Safari view or yeah. something. Okay, yeah. Because you know, JavaScript had such a had a much better charts library than anything I could find for the Mac. So the new charts framework is is brilliant. I, I've really enjoyed experimenting with that. There's things like last year Mac got a table view. This year that's available now to iOS, which is another great advanced SwiftUI. There was a big emphasis, like going going to what you were saying about bringing the iPad to the Mac. There's definitely bringing stuff from the Mac to the iPad, such as yeah. like like you said, the table view. Big emphasis. On, there was like a lot of talks on multiple windows on the iPad. Like you could definitely tell they're trying to like make well uh, what's it called stage manager did i say that right yeah like there's definitely this big push to make the ipad more macky yeah i'm not sure they've quite figured out yet where the ipad's going but i thought when they announced stage manager at, at the keynote i thought this looks amazing and i tried it on my my mac book that's running the adventure beta and i ended up turning it off it was too frustrating okay I have not used it once. I've been on all my machines and I haven't even tried it. I'm too scared. Well, uh, luckily it's easy to turn on and off, although the control panel for doing so is kind of weird. It's got two toggles, the one's off and one's on, and that's a weird combination of uh, controls to me. But again, a design decision. But I was using my Ventura machine mostly for Xcode, and you run your app in Xcode and Xcode disappears. Because you've stage managed. So now your app's to the front and Xcode's not. So if you're logging anything to the console, you can't see it. Uh, so I would like to see more fine-grained control of stage manager. So I could say, don't disappear certain apps. And and yeah, you can. I can drag Xcode back so it's showing in the same space as my app. But next time I run my app, that's a different app. And so Xcode disappears again. So I was really excited about Stage Manager, and so far I've found uh, it's not for me. So one of the big things, we got custom layouts, we got like a more mature navigation pattern API, I guess, SwiftUI. Where have you seen AppKit still fit in as a need when you're building a Mac app using SwiftUI? Okay, there are definitely sort of Mac-specific controls that SwiftUI doesn't have and may never have. Things like uh, a path control where you show a, show a file path, and that's obviously not something that's going to be ever relevant on an iOS device. Um, web view. I was quite surprised that SwiftUI didn't get a web view because that, to me, is a very common use case. Are those both easily brought in as like an NSView representable? Yeah, they are. Okay. Definitely. So I think... AppKit has a has a place to bring in, as you say, with the, the representable views, to bring in the, the controls that don't yet exist on SwiftUI. The other thing where AppKit really shines is performance with large amounts of data. Okay. If you've got if you try to put a thousand items in a SwiftUI list, your app's gonna choke. Okay. It's not gonna like that at all. But you can put, you know, 100,000 items in an NS table view and it's fine. 
So uh, for large performance stuff, I think AppKit's going to still win. The other thing that I think uh, where AppKit is a big winner is in long format text editing. And okay. SwiftUI got text editor, which is a multi-line text edit view, but it doesn't have the fine grain controls that that uh, the AppKit equivalent has. You can't work out where the cursor is. You can't apply, you know, you, you can't apply a styling to a selection. You can't find the selection. So those would be my two big things where I would want AppKit, as well as the NSView representable stuff. Uh, I think it's very unlikely uh, in the near future that you'll be able to build a complete app using SwiftUI for either iOS or macOS. I think there's there's nearly always going to be the case for bringing in something that SwiftUI doesn't have yet. Yeah, it's like that last 10% will always be really, really difficult to, to bring in. Yes, and, and, and SwiftUI is, is adding to its repertoire every year, but you know it'll take a while before everything's across. Yeah, totally. Do you think the performance thing will be resolved? Like you said, where you have like a thousand items, that's where SwiftUI kind of chokes. I would hope so. I mean, in theory, these lists are lazily loaded, but it didn't seem like it to me. And if you try to track the selection, it gets even worse. So, yeah, I would obviously they've got the capability to do this because they've done it with table view. But so I would really like to see that come across. Just build it in the chip. Just put an Apple Silicon processor that's specific for Swift UI. They have the hardware, right? So what the heck? They could go that route. So should we ask the question, why write a Mac OS app? Or do you want to answer the question how Mac OS app development is different from iOS? Oh, let's talk about why why write a Mac OS app, because that's a that's a subject dear to my heart. Okay. Basically, I, I love working on my Mac. I, I whether you're an iOS developer or a Mac developer, you work on a Mac all the time. Why wouldn't you want to write apps for this wonderful machine? It's the most powerful machine. It's the most flexible machine. It's the most unrestricted machine that Apple makes. And that gives you enormous potential as an app developer. Now, there are various ways to get an app onto a Mac. You can, I mean, if it's an M1 Mac, you can download any iPhone app from the App Store and run it, which is a very neat trick, but it looks kind of weird. <laughs> and then and then we've got the Catalyst option. And again, if you've got an iPad app and you don't want to spend time updating it, but you'd like people to use it on the Mac, then go for it. But it looks like an iPad app running on the Mac. It's It's got huge amounts of white space. It's got big clunky controls because they're designed for a finger, not a pointer. So to my mind, and I think that Apple's coming around to this view as well, a native Mac app is going to give your app the best performance and it's going to give your users the best experience. Can I ask, can I say the dirty word in macOS development, native macOS development that you're not supposed to ask? Ask. Uh, it's a certain subatomic particle called Electron. Okay. Why would you not go that route? All right. Look, if I had an app and I wanted to have a, a an app that ran Windows and Mac, I would definitely go that route. But if it's, if my Mac, if my app is purely on the Mac, then I'll get much better performance as a native Mac app. That makes sense. Yeah. One, one, one question I, I think I would have is as far as like, I'm thinking as the business owner, putting an app on the Mac OS as opposed to putting a Mac on iOS, 
you have a smaller audience, but you might have an audience that's willing to spend a bit more, possibly. So kind of your bottom line might be just as good on the Mac. Uh, that's my experience. And it's more like, yeah. And I guess the Mac would also be like more for creative types. Whereas iOS, you know, for every person that creates one TikTok video, there's a, like a thousand people that watch it. So it's not like, it's not like you have, it's much more focused on creatives, right? Than it is on consumers. So you've got more of your like video editors, developers. Developing tools. Yeah, I quite agree. Apps like Ulysses, like more creating type apps, I would think on the Mac as opposed to consumption type apps, right? Yeah. And also, as you say, um, people are prepared to pay for a Mac app. Uh, you can't put a, a paid app on the iOS app store and expect to get any downloads. Right. Yeah, exactly. So we covered the why. Let's talk about how is it, how is macOS development different from iOS? Because a lot of, a lot of the audience is going to be iOS developers. And it sounds like even your book kind of targets iOS devs and kind of teaches them. I, yeah, it does target iOS developers. Yeah, I think let's let's cover that elephant in the room, so to speak. Well, uh, I mean, the the differences are vastly reduced if you're using Swift UI. You know, you make an uh, you you open a Xcode and you make a template for a standard macOS app. That template is is identical. The files in that template are identical to the files, or the Swift files in that template are identical to the Swift files you'd get if you started an iOS app template. So immediately, you've reduced the barrier of entry for an iOS developer starting on the Mac. The things that iOS developers don't cover are the things that that Mac users expect, like they expect the common functions to be in the menu bar. They expect a lot of keyboard shortcuts. They expect a settings view. They expect maybe toolbars and, of course, multiple windows, which is a is uh, as you said earlier, it's coming to iPad, but but it's 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 a bit weird still. But Mac users just expect to be to have multiple windows. Yeah, that's a that was a big thing that I I had to get used to. Like, well, speaking of Swift UI, I was doing like a Swift UI preview, and I wanted the preview box to look like it actually would look like in the Mac window, and I could not. I don't think I could get ever get it to work. Uh, the way I wanted it to. So I had to like basically run the app so it looked like that specific window style using a layout, a preview provider or whatever. I, I agree. The preview is a bit weird. Yeah, right. Like I can get the basic idea of what I want, but not like the actual Chrome of the window, so to speak. I guess that's the word you no. use. So it, it wouldn't look right. Even even when you did the bring, bring forward thing where it like kind of launches the app, like that didn't do it either. Trust me, I tried scouring your blog for that one. I could not find it anywhere. No, it's not there. I use the preview for building components. And then when I put the components together into a window, I run the app. And, of course, without a simulator, because you're running natively, running the app is 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 very fast. Yes. But going back to what we were talking about before the show, there is no way to reset your simulator in the Mac, which is hopefully a problem I can solve soon. Um, but yeah, so I, cause I have run into that issue where like I built an app for the Mac and somebody in Europe was like the, it was parsing decimals differently, the US oh, way. And yeah. To, mm. And there was like no way you would have known, I would have ever known that running the app. So yeah, I found that out the hard way, learned my lesson. Yeah. 
dealing with well, yeah, to me, dealing with multiple windows is a big thing. One thing, one thing I wanted to talk about too, um, that I think is a big thing with Mac apps, but it's capable in iOS. We just don't think about it very often. Um, document-based apps. So they introduced SwiftUI document-based apps a couple of years, was it two years ago, three years ago? Three, I think. Okay, yeah. But before that, there was like the NS document stuff. What What's kind of your opinion on the maturity of the SwiftUI document API? Uh, I, I think it's great because it if you if you make the two template apps, uh, an AppKit document-based app or a SwiftUI document-based app, the SwiftUI one, gives you so much of what you need already baked into the template. Whereas AppKit kind of, it has a fatal error because you haven't written this bit of boilerplate code yet. (laughs) Now, what you do with the document, once you get the data, that's entirely up to you. And the default, the default in AppKit is to do nothing with it, except to show you, say, a big sign saying, here's where your content would go. And the default in SwiftUI is to give you a text editor. And uh, which is kind of more useful <clears throat> a starting point, I think. Okay. So I would, I would, if I was doing a document-based app, I would definitely start with SwiftUI, use the SwiftUI framework, and then go with whatever I wanted. So one of the things I had run across with with my work on Bushel uh, was communication between Windows and trying to figure that out. That seemed the most awkward. I had to figure out ways of using like the handle external events and the open URL stuff to communicate between windows. And then there's a Swift package you bring in on the book, right? To help with that as well. There is, but um, when I update the book, that's going to be gone because uh, in Ventura, uh, we have much better ways of dealing with that. Um, and I think you read my blog, you probably saw that in my in my Swift UI yes. for 2022 version. So there's a couple of really new, really good new environment values. Uh, one is open window and one is oh gosh, what's it called now? It's um New Document. Uh, no, no, it's the one that tells you which window is active. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. We'll put a link to it in the notes. It's okay. Thank you. Okay. So that's the one that um I brought in a a uh, Swift package because I couldn't get uh, I couldn't get the system I couldn't get SwiftUI to tell me which was the active window. Right. And and Apple had pre- provided this uh, focus binding thing, but I couldn't get it to work properly. And it does now work under Ventura, but you don't need it. So win win. Yay! Yeah, like in my case, well, I I found out about all that stuff way too late. But then at the same time, I'm also trying to get my app to support Monterey, anyways. So. Yeah. I guess it wasn't that much of a loss, which is one thing like we don't think about. And I don't know what your what numbers you typically see, but like it seems like with Mac OS, people are more comfortable staying on the older OS as opposed to jumping on the newer OS as opposed to iOS, where it's just kind of like, why would you not update your phone? I guess. Yeah. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. And, and yes, I do think there's a lot more resistance to updating on the Mac side. And um, as an as an educator, I always go with the latest and greatest because there's no point. You know, it takes so long to to get a, a post out or to get a book out that if you try to deal with old versions, then your book is way out of date. So, so I always focus on the latest. Yeah, nobody is going to be like, "Oh, how do you do it the old way?" Like, you may yeah. as well learn it the latest way, and then if you need to support an older OS, then find the workarounds that you have to go through. Yes, exactly. Um, but the other thing about uh, there's an, another new thing about multiple windows, and that's 
That's Window Group and Window. You know, when you get your, when you create a new SwiftUI app and you've got your first default Window Group uh, set up that you send to your content view, uh, or that that shows your content view, but you can add multiple Window Groups and you can give them an ID and you can give them a data object. So you can then use Open Document passing that ID and passing the data object or a data that's binding right. to this new window. Um, so that's a new thing this year that makes multi-window communication so much easier. It feels like they, they brought in a lot of the stuff that they learned with the new navigation API into the window group stuff. Like with the ID and the data object that has kind of echoes of the new path stuff that they brought in, navigation path or whatever. That's true. I hadn't really thought about that, but yeah, you're right. The new navigation stuff is really good because navigation link never really worked on the Mac. Navigation view was fine, but navigation link didn't. And now with the navigation split view, it's just so much more obvious how to do navigation. What else do you want to talk about when it comes to Windows, multi-window apps in the Mac and documents? Well, something that I learned, which is, which was perhaps not intuitive to me, but sh- perhaps should have been from the name. If you if you add a window group to your a second window group to your app, you can have multiple windows open. But if you want a single view window, don't add a window group and add just a window. And that's that's a single shot window. Then you can open it and close it. But if you try to open it, it's already open. It'll just bring it to the front. It won't create a second copy. And that's really? sometimes very useful. I gotta try that out then because I I've been trying to do that. And I got tricked by the ID stuff because I assumed ID was for the window, but it was actually, you know, it's actually for the group. So you can like just put a window in SwiftUI and it will. Yeah. So instead of where, where you would put window group and then uh, give it a, a content view or, mm-hmm. you know, a SwiftUI view, just put window and then you can give it an ID just the same and open it using open window just the same. Okay. So window is like a new structure in, in Ventura. Yeah. I think it's new. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and then you put the content view inside there. Interesting. That's awesome. Yeah, because there's like, there's basically no way of doing it. The one way that I saw was like, get rid of the new in the menu item. But it's like, no, that's not what I'm trying to do. And you find like all these like queer. That's that's one of the things as you get into Mac development is all these like quirky things that you think are fairly like common sense, like are missing. I have one more point about this new window, which is really cool. When you make a new window, it automatically adds an entry to the window menu for that window to open it for you. Yes. Yeah. And you can add a keyboard shortcut to it as well. So that's really cool. So, and then one of the things I wanted to talk about too was menus. You can, you can do quite a bit with menus now with like the way you can replace and delete and remove and you can insert them anywhere within the menu hierarchy. You want to explain that a little bit? Okay, so they call in, in, in Mac OS world, in SwiftUI, they call menus commands. And uh, you add a commands modifier to, you, to your app's window group. And there's two things basically you can add. You can add a command menu, which is a whole new menu with a new title and new menu items. Or you can add a command group, which inserts a new menu item or group of menu items into an existing menu. And you can say where you want it to be, which can, as you said, can either be before, or after, or replacing known menu items. But one of the really cool things about uh, menus is that, you know, in AppKit, you had NS menu item, and that was it. Basically, it had text and it had an action, 
on Swift UI, uh, a menu item can be a button. It can be a toggle. It can be a, a menu in itself to give you a submenu. Um, it, it's, it's so much more powerful because, you know, you, you have a toggle and you automatically get the little checkbox on and off. You have a menu, you automatically get the submenus. And, and it, they can all add keyboard shortcuts, of course. So, yeah, don't just um, think about adding a button to a menu. You can add lots of things to menus. And then going back, one of the things that I wanted to touch base back on was stuff about document group. Document uh-huh. group is essentially window group for documents, and you can make them read-only or editable. And that automatically adds, like, the new item stuff and the open menu for whatever yeah. types and you for re- um, support. Yeah, and so for each document type you have, you'd want a new document group. Like if you're if you were editing text, you'd have one document group. If you're editing an image, you'd have another second document group for the image type, that sort of thing. Right, exactly. Do you want to talk about sidebars and navigation? Have you used any of the new navigation stuff in Mac OS yet? Yeah, I have, and I really like it. Um, I think one of the things that mac users expect is for the standard mac app to have a a fairly predictable structure you know you shouldn't open up a mac app and think now what do i click on i don't i don't understand what's going on and and so we have a convention of a sidebar and a detail view and then possibly a a, a, um, even more detailed view on on the other side and the sidebars are are a huge navigation feature in Mac OS. And, and and they are in iOS of course as well, especially iPad OS. Um there was a thing and it's still a bit weird. If you make a sidebar, uh you can drag, you can use the mouse to drag the divider to the to make it bigger or smaller. And if you drag it all the way to the to the left side of your window and let go the mouse, you can't get it back. Which was kind of weird. I think there's like a ton of Stack Overflow questions about how do you sh- how do you add a button to show it back or something. I think yeah, I've seen well, that the- several times in my googling. I'm sure you have. And the nice thing is that in the new navigation split view, is that navigation? Yeah, navigation split view. It automatically adds that button for you to the toolbar, which is very cool. Um, the new navigation stuff is I really like it because. Navigation on the Mac was kind of different. It looked, when you used a navigation view, it looked like it was the same on the Mac as on the iPad, but it didn't work the same. And so that was confusing. And you couldn't really use navigation link because for some reason the Mac didn't like navigation links. So it was, it was difficult to work out. But the new navigation split view where you can choose, you know, your sidebar view and your detail view and your, and your far right view if you want one, that just makes things so much easier. And I think um, I, I think it'll be really a good productivity enhancement to have all that new thing. And as you say, we've got the programmatic navigation too. And and I have to say I haven't used that one yet. That's I haven't tested that one out yet. It looked really good, particularly on the iPhone with the uh, what they call it, navigation stack view. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just the this it seems so much more robust than what we had before. I think so. UI. And I think that's an example of of the Swift UI team actually, you know, listening to developers. <laughs> right, right. Or at least like using their own dog, you know, what is it, eating their own dog food and like building apps and realizing what's short. Like I ended up doing navigation view and then, 
you could set up a list and then set the list style to like sidebar. That's what I ended up doing for my app. Yeah, that's what I did too. And that yeah. seemed to work okay. Yeah, yeah. But now it's like, like, ugh, I just want, just want to get it to work on Venture and not have to backport it. But oh well. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the real big challenge: creating an app, a multi-platform app. And when I, I don't use the term cross-platform because to me cross-platform means like yeah, multi-platform. Multi-platform means, of course, uh, I'm talking only apples. So building an app that works, we'll just say iPad, uh, iPhone, and Mac, and we'll leave out the watch and TV for now. Um, with with SwiftUI, what, what's kind of your diagnosis on that if you've tried it yet? I think this is another area where Apple's really um, uh, made some big advances this year. Uh, in Xcode, if you you can add a target. So say you've got an existing iPad app and, and you go and you add target and you can choose Mac Catalyst or you can choose native Mac. And of course, I would say go for native Mac. And then within that, you'll, you'll uh, choose files that are part of that Mac target and you'll have new files that are only part of that Mac target. So if you imagine the standard app, you've got lots of... Um, you might have a networking class and you might have your, all your data models and... That's all totally platform independent. So you'd share all those files. And even some component views you might have shared. But the, then the basic layout, you'll make a Mac layout instead of, the, instead of an iPhone layout or an iPad layout. And so in the same Xcode project, you can really work well to ha- it's become a lot easier to make the multi-platform app work well in Xcode. One of the things that I do miss as a part-time web designer, web developer, is like the responsive design abilities that you get with CSS. And that's one of the things I miss in SwiftUI is being able to say like, oh, if it's a Mac, do this. And I guess you get like preprocessor directives. Like, is has that improved? Is that better, I guess, than it used to be? Or like, is there a way to define, oh, on this kind of device, like do this and on this kind of device, do that. There is with all those, you have, as you say, those, those pre preprocessor directives that, you know, the hash, if, or iOS or if Mac OS, whatever. But I find they're, they make your code very confusing and I'd rather just have two files. So here's my content view. If you're on the iPad and here's my content view, if you're on the Mac and they'll both share certain bits and they'll both share data but they'll be able, I'll be able to have completely different look and feel native specific to each platform. And that makes total sense. I've uh, I recently I have a couple of watch apps where I finally built an iPhone app for them and in those cases honestly I just built a whole new like SwiftUI set of SwiftUI files for the views and they all use the same observable objects um underneath them. So it's like yeah, at that at that point, if it's that radically different of a UI and with watch and iPhone, it kind of makes sense. Then you probably are better off having separate files, and then outside of those files, you can have your preprocessor directives, which will then and it's going to be more maintainable, much easier to read when you come back to it instead of having to plod through all these ifs which don't format correctly and don't indent correctly, and it's just messy. It's like one of the big vices of developers is not trying trying not to repeat and then refa- over refactoring. And I think this is a case of where copying code actually makes sense. Um, uh, I think way. so. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Anything else before we go to the app store uh, side of things when it comes to Mac apps? 
You mentioned that uh, you do some web development too, and and I do as well. Um, one of the new things this year is Xcode's. It's not a plugin system, but you know, there's the package. Oh, package Swift package plugins. Yes. Yeah. And I think, um, I mean, I use Visual Studio Code for web development, and the the extensions are what makes it a great app to me. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I love being able to, you know, just hit Command S and my JavaScript code is automatically beautifully formatted. And I would love to see the same sort of functionality opened up in Xcode where we could have all this. Because I know that there's developers out there that would just write fantastic plugins. So I don't know if this Swift package plugin is the answer, but at least it's a step towards reopening up Xcode, which used to have a plugin system. But Apple killed it. I mean, it kind of does, but I hear it's like a pain in the butt to deal with. And Apple doesn't make it the nicest and doesn't spend the time with it. No. Yeah, you look at Visual Studio Code. Speaking of which, they have now a Swift plugin, which is awesome. Yeah. Write Swift code. And I, I'm so tempted to go that route. I actually installed <laughs> it on my 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 lone Linux machine in the in the house, so I want to try. It. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Anything else? I want to jump into our more. I don't want to call them soft questions, but about user expectations and app distribution, because that's that's a whole can of worms there. Uh, app distribution, yeah. We kind of talked about the expectations earlier, where basically the the Mac users expect they expect to be able to keep their hands on the keyboard a lot more. Right. You know what's a good litmus test is anytime you hear a blog post or podcast where they complain about the iPad, all the complaints about the iPad are expectations that people have about Mac. Uh, software. It's like, why can't we have multiple windows? Huh, that's interesting. Why can't we have short keyboard shortcuts? Why can't we have, it's like, yeah, that's kind of what people expect when it comes to Mac apps. Yeah. And you think, well, you know, what you really want is a Mac. Yeah. (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah. So like, I feel like that's a good, that's a good, almost like litmus test, not litmus test, just a good like shortcut to get like, what is, what is the expectation people have about Macs? Like, Hear what, what people complain about iPad OS because that pretty much tells you what people expect. That's uh, a, that's a good one. I hadn't thought of it that way yet, but I like it. Okay, on to distribution, which is, of course, <laughs> a horrible can of worms. Uh, first, yeah, how do you decide that? Look, I have very few apps out there, and I use the Mac App Store. Because it just saves me so much trouble. I don't have to worry about payments and refunds and distribution and all that sort of rubbish. Now, you are, of course, at the mercy of the app review system. And we've all had rejections or uh, complaints. I found in my case that the rejections have been quite reasonable. And, you know, I've had Apple people ring me up having worked out my time zone, which is quite impressive, and explain to me what I needed to do to fix my app. So I haven't had the horror stories with App Review that that we all read about. And I'm wondering if there's less of them on the Mac side too. That that could well be. Um, I mean the Mac apps, the Mac App Store app itself is, I think it's a Catalyst app. But <laughs> you know it's it's a pretty good app, uh, and they they have nice showcases and stuff. But I don't know how many people distribute there as opposed to distributing individually, you know, on their own. And that's, of course, the big thing, that you, Apple doesn't restrict you to distributing from within the Mac App Store. You can just download a piece of software and install it at your own risk. They do provide the notarization service, which I think is great. Oh, the notar- So, yeah, 
Yeah, go ahead. Talk about the notarization stuff. Well, this is if you want to distribute the app yourself, but you don't want your users to get that horrible warning of Apple has not been able to check this software. Are you sure you want to run it? So basically, it, it's not an app review. It's it's a check for it's a check for spam and and robots and nasties. Well, like for instance, with like for the for, was a Fortnite app where like they even though you don't go through the app store, there's still a way where Apple can like deny your app on the Mac. I don't know if notarization is is tied to that necessarily, but like they can deny your developer certificate. Uh, on the Mac. I would imagine if you have your app notarized, it is somehow tied to your developer certificate. And so they could block it, but it doesn't stop you then distributing a non-notarized version. It's just that people will get the warning. But it, it is going to get harder and harder to put a non-notarized app. It is. I think it's going to be ever increasingly harder, but the notarization service works very well. It, it just takes a few minutes. Um, it, 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 there's no... Reviews, so you, it's it's totally automated. You're not subject to any person, whether they're having a bad day or not. It's just checking your, your app for malicious software, and, and it attaches a certificate and says this is good to go. So at that point, then you can distribute the app yourself, and you can distribute it through you know uh, somewhere like Gumroad or Paddle or whatever if you want to, to, to get somebody else to take some of that burden off you. Um, I think they all charge you know, similar fees to Apple, to be honest. But Do they really? Is it that high? I think so. I mean, we forget before Apple started, people like this were charging 70%. It was Apple that yeah, brought it down true. to 30% and 15%, of course, if you're a small business. Right, right. There's two things, two drawbacks on the Mac App Store that I want to mention that you don't have on iOS. One, and you kind of hinted at this, people don't go on the App Store on the Mac unfortunately. And so I'll, I've talked, I've chatted with Ariel Michelli over at app figures. Like, what do I, what do I do for my, my app store entry in the Mac app store? Like they don't even have things like product pages. I think I've, I've been going to these Apple WebEx things where they've been talking about app store stuff and all they're like, Oh yeah, we don't have that on the Mac. So you even lose that out. So it's almost like, honestly, if you want to reach your audience that there's barely any benefit to the Mac app store per se as far as like unless you do search stuff yeah you almost want to depend more on seo than aso so to speak if you want people to find your app well yeah i think discoverability is a huge thing but i think if people discover your app from from any source i think they're more comfortable downloading it from the app store and i think um people with with, uh, newcomers particularly to the mac platform they're much happier downloading stuff from the Mac app store rather than having to go somewhere else and find it. So, um, yeah, I do, I do agree that discoverability, well, that's the huge problem with any app and any app store, isn't it? Getting people to find your app. Right. It's just, it's not as, it's not a regular routine for, for Mac users to go to the app store as opposed to going to the app store on your phone or iPad. Yes. Yes. I think I, I agree. I think I tend to hear about an app and then I go to the app store to see if it's there. Right, right. And then, of course, now the other big curveball yeah. uh, that we all, we all have to deal with on iOS, but we just it's so transparent we don't even notice. But on the Mac, it makes a big difference. Sandboxing. You want to talk about that? For sure. 
And I have to say, this is this has driven me crazy times out of number. It's look intellectually, I think it's a good idea. I, I like the idea that if I get an app from somewhere else, that it's quarantined and it's not going to, you know, read my contacts without my permission, or it's not going to r- overwrite any of my file system without my permission. And that if I want to delete it, I know all its stuff is in a certain folder in my library. So that's the good side of Sandbox. The bad side is, of course, that it restricts what you can do. And as Mac developers, we used to being able to do everything, have total access to the file system, have total access to everything. And we have to give that up when we go into the Sandbox. And of course, you can't put an app in the Mac App Store without being sandboxed. And I think that's a shame because I think there are some apps that that just that need to be not sandboxed and that so therefore they can't be in the app store and I would like them to be there with a warning you know it's like if you open a non-notarized app it says are you sure you know this isn't hasn't been checked for malicious software if I open a non-sandboxed app for the first time I'd like it to say this app is not sandboxed and could have access to your full hard drive is that okay Right. You kind of see the pattern of like, oh, by the way, we need you to go to accessibility and give us full disk access. Oh, like yeah. that's kind of the workaround around it that I've seen yeah. in a lot of apps. And it seems weird to me that accessibility is becoming the workaround, as you say. Uh, I mean, I'm right. I'm in the accessibility system pane every time I install a new app, you know, do you, are you going to give it access to this or that or whatever? And and it seems weird. I know what Apple is trying to do. They're trying to make, like push developers not to get ask for it. But for me, it's like, why not just have like we have we ask for location permission, or we ask for mic permission, ask for full disk access permission, and like just make it transparent to the user. Don't try to hide it and be like, this is why you know have a reason just like you do with location and go with it. Like it just. Yeah, I I agree completely. Wait, have have um, yes, have better access to a permissions suite that we could request. There is one thing that Apple's made really good this year, and that's um, allowing apps to launch on login. And they had a system before sandboxing, and this is why it's relevant in this section. Before sandboxing, it was quite easy, and. Uh, if you added an item to the the SM login services or something like that, it actually appeared in the login items in your system preferences, users, and groups. But then they didn't allow that with sandboxing. And so you had this weird thing where you had to make a helper app and sign the helper app. And then the helper app, all it did was launch the, the original app. And, and yes, it was in the login items, but it didn't appear in the logins items, so you couldn't find it to get rid of it when you wanted to. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've built one of those helper services. It's a pain in the neck. Oh, yeah, it's a pain. Um, now they've gone back to a simple, a really simple command, uh, a simple class that you just have to enable. And the great thing is that when you do this, the app that you've set to launch on login actually appears under login items in the in the new system settings app. So that's a huge benefit to sandbox yeah. apps. Yeah, agreed. Anything else we want to cover? Oof. I've, uh, I have more questions, but I'm also like, I'm going to get way too technical for today, and I think we could save it for maybe next time. But the book the book is awesome. Thank you. People should definitely check it out. I'll have a link to it. I bought it. I had such fun reading it. and. 
and uh, such a great team behind me that it's it's really good to have such editors and um, people working with me. If you are interested in getting into macOS development and you want to do more Swift UI, definitely check this book out. Uh, and it sounds like there will be updates with all the new Ventura stuff, so that's fantastic. Anything else you want to mention before we close out? Go out there. Write a Mac app. You can do it. <laughs> and if you have a good one, let me know. I'd love to take yeah. a look at it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sarah. Where can people find you online? At, at Twitter, I'm at Trollsware. And uh, on the web, I'm Trolls.net. Awesome. Yeah. T- uh, check out Trolls.net. There's like, I don't know how often you write, but there's real great. If you want to just a sample of what's in the book, check that out. Thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on. Thank you very much, Leo, for asking me. I had a lot of fun talking. People can find me on Twitter at Leo G. Dion. My company is Bright Digit. Take some time to subscribe and like if you're watching this on YouTube. And if you're listening to this, go to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever. We'd love to have a review. And if you have any ideas of topics you want us to talk about, let me know. Hopefully, we'll be talking about the new iPhone in our next episode. So stay tuned for that. Thanks so much for everybody coming back on after summer break. And I look forward to talking to you again. Bye. Bye.